file is part of the Swiss Libri Lecture Podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family, and colleagues, but we ask you to respect our copyright. So feel free to share it online, but preserve this message and don't modify the file in any way. Also, the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time are not necessarily representative of the views of Liberty Fellowship. The topic of today's lecture is joy. What is it? How is it defined? Is it separate from happiness? Is my understanding of joy connected so much with the Western model of success that perhaps I've in least part uh, lost its meaning? When I committed to making this lecture months ago, I was in a different place. Um, that was before a friend passed away, a friend's brother passed away from coronavirus, before the murders of George Floyd and others, and before the deaths of police officers and protesters, and well before the protests ensued around the world, particularly in America, my home country. And as the date loomed for me to give this lecture, I found that joy couldn't be further away from the list of emotions I would use to present my current state of being. Um, maybe you're in this place too. It couldn't be further than what I feel today. Um, I thought about shelving this lecture and saving it for another time, but as I've delved deeper into the subject, I've realized that my understanding of joy is severely impoverished, that it doesn't mean a happy-go-lucky life, and that it's even hospitable to my current sadness. So today I've given myself permission to be sad while giving this lecture on joy. So let's begin to hear how um, Webster's Dictionary defines joy. It is defined as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Delight, a state of happiness or felicity. Bliss, a source of cause, a source or cause of delight. Now this is a simple enough definition and not one that we're unfamiliar with. Many of you are probably thinking that sounds, that sounds about right. That's what I would expect. Um, but listen to these words. Listen to what Christian Wyman says in his essay, Still Wilderness, about this definition. He says, <clears throat> If you're musing on the general meaning of joy, or sitting down to write an article on the subject, this might be of some use as a place to start. But if you were trying to understand why a moment of joy can blast you right out of the life to which it makes you all the more lovingly and tenaciously attached, or why this lift into pure bliss might also entail a steep drop of loss, or how in the midst of some great grief, some fugitive and inexplicable joy might, like one tiny flower in a land of ash, bloom. Well, in these cases, the dictionary is useless. I don't know about you, but when I hear these words, it makes me pause. <clears throat> I think as a person raised in the West with many comforts and pleasures at my disposal, I often just, just assume that joyful could be a word I would use to describe my state of life. But Wyman's words have made me thoughtful on the subject. Am I full of joy or am I full of privileged comforts? Have I indeed experienced this fugitive and inexplicable joy as Wyman describes it? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, echoes some of these sentiments. He writes of an experience that he couldn't quite put to words. He says, As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, as if from a depth not of years but of centuries, 
the memory of that earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full ancient meaning to enormous, comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. The quality common to three experiences is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which here is a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic, and only one, in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. It's fair to say, after reading this, that Webster's Dictionary perhaps leaves something left to be desired when it comes to defining joy, if we are to take Wyman and Lewis seriously. In response to this question, Christian Wyman has compiled a book of a hundred poems and excerpts from larger texts that attempts to get at the meaning of this word, this ineffable joy. The writers contributing to this project range from modernists to modern-day poets, essayists, essayists, and writers, and the book serves as a sort of paint-by-numbers, each poem or excerpt coloring in one part of the picture, filling out the meaning of the word. In the end, I'd say it's still a bit of a Monet, it's an impressionist painting, but the overall experience lends itself to a fuller, a fuller understanding of joy. In addition to curating the anthology, Wyman's essay, Still Wilderness, appears at the onslaught of the book, grappling with joy while referring to many of the poet's works he's chosen for the book. Throughout this lecture, I'll be referring to Wyman's words from his essay, as well as the wisdom behind the poet's works of his choosing. Two writers included in his anthology who convey the common human desire to put more adequate language around the subject are the great Israeli poet Yehuda Amekai in, in his poem The Precision of Pain and the Blurriness of Joy and an excerpt from a letter from Rainer Marina, Maria Rilke to his friend Ilsa Erdman in 1914. So I'll read the poem first. The Precision of Pain and the Blurriness of Joy. The precision of pain and the blurriness of joy. I'm thinking how precise people are when they describe their pain in a doctor's office. Even those who haven't learned to read and write are precise. This one's a throbbing pain. That one's a wrenching pain. This one gnaws. That one burns. This is a sharp pain. And that one, a dull one. Right here. Precisely here. Yes, yes. Joy blurs everything. I've heard people say, after nights of love and feasting, it was great, I was in seventh heaven. Even the spaceman who floated in outer space, tethered to a spaceship, could only say, great, wonderful, I have no words. The blurriness of joy and the precision of pain. I want to describe with a sharp pain's precision, happiness and blurry joy. I learned to speak among the pains. 
And this one is from Raina Maria Rilke. The reality of any joy in the world is indescribable. Only in joy does creation happen. Happiness, on the contrary, is only a promising and interpretable, interpretable pattern of things already existing. Joy, however, is a marvelous increasing of what already exists, a pure addition out of nothingness. How superficially must happiness engage us, after all, if it can leave us time to think and worry about how long it will last? Joy is a moment, unobligated, timeless from the beginning, not to be held, but also not to be truly lost again, since under its impact, our being is changed, chemically, so to speak, and does not only, as may be the case with happiness, savor and enjoy itself in a new mixture. These writings, I think, so well put to words the frustration of defining the thing which is not precise in front of us. I find Amakai's use of the word blurry very effective here, and the desire to somehow find language that can describe joy um, and seemingly it's, it's always in generic terms. Wyman describes human beings as hapless generalizers for joy. I think that's true. Rilke echoes some of Amakai's ideas with calling joy indescribable, but maintaining that it is in fact a moment unlike happiness, which leaves us time to worry and wonder how long it will last. Wyman's word of fugitive resonates here as well, and Lewis would reinforce it when he describes joy as a glimpse, there one moment and withdrawn the next, after which the world becomes commonplace again. Søren Kierkegaard similarly says this about joy. Joy is in the present tense, with the whole emphasis on the present. Wyman adds that perhaps joy is a flash of eternity that illuminates time in the present. So these passages, in my view, highlight three important features of joy. One, that it, it reiterates, it reinforces this idea that joy is truly and uniquely a moment, as Rilke, Wyman, and Kierkegaard suggest. Two, that joy will inequ inequitably change the experiencer. Rilke even suggests there is a chemical change. And three, that joy is distinguishable from happiness. So Lewis imp implies in his account of the current bush that not only is joy momentous, but it's also uncommon. He mentions that real joy had only occurred in his life three times, that instance being one of them. This is very interesting to me. Um, Zadie Smith has an essay called Joy, which is very, very interesting. I recommend you listen to it online. It's available. Um, and Wyman includes it in his um, 100 poem book. He abbreviates it. Uh, but it touches on this point very, very well. It's also very humorous. She describes um, this, uh, her feelings toward her child in this excerpt. She says, Occasionally the child, too, is a pleasure, though mostly she is a joy, which means, in fact, that she gives us not much pleasure at all, but rather that strange admixture of terror, pain, and delight that I have come to recognize as joy, and now must find some way to live with daily. This is a new problem. Until quite recently, I'd only known joy five or six times in my life, and each time tried to forget it soon after it happened, out of the fear that, that the memory of it would dement and destroy everything else. So I find her writing refreshing and humorous, and I can't help but laugh at her stab at joy here as the great disruptor. But notice her admission that after experiencing joy, she recognizes its power to change everything. She dramatizes it by writing, dement and destroy, of course, and I'm sure others would use different language. Here's another excerpt from the same essay. She goes on to describe another instance of joy and expands her ideas on its arrival in her life. <clears throat> 
Uh, and this is the excerpt that Wyman chose to include in his collection. Real love came much later. It lay at the end of a long and arduous road, and up to the very last moment I had been convinced it wouldn't happen. I was so surprised by its arrival, so unprepared, that on the day it arrived I had already arranged for us to visit the Holocaust Museum at Auschwitz. We were holding my feet on the train on to the bus that would take us there. We were heading toward all that makes life intolerable, feeling the only thing that makes it worthwhile. That was joy. But it's no good thinking about it or discussing it. It has no place next to the furious argument about who cleaned the house or who picked up the child. It is irrelevant when sitting peacefully watching an old movie or doing an impression of two old ladies in a shop, or as they eat a popsicle while you scowl at me, or when working on different floors of the library. It doesn't fit with the everyday. The thing no one ever tells you about joy is that it has very little real pleasure in it. And yet, if it hadn't happened at all, at least once, how would we live? Here Smith asks the vital question. If we hadn't known joy, at least once, how would we live each day? When joy explodes into a moment, it requires a change. Sometimes not without burden. But it is also the great illuminator. Wyman writes that joy is what keeps reality from being sufficient unto itself, which is to say it is what keeps reality real. Since in this world of multiverses and quantum weirdness, where 95% of the matter and energy we know only to name is dark, it is obvious that reality extends far beyond what our senses can perceive. Sorry for the emotion in my voice. <clears throat> I try to pull it together. I want to no make you notice here as well, if you can call attention to the fact that Smith does not mention happiness at all. She mentions pleasure. She mentions her daughter as a pleasure occasionally, but even pleasure is fleeting here. And maybe a bit shockingly, she boldly states that joy and pleasure are far from synonymous. Wyman distinguishes with references to Lewis and Aristotle that happiness is a disposition or evaluation. We are happy when we experience pleasure, when things go our way, and so on. Joy, by contrast, is an emotion. There is always an element of having being seized. Happiness involves enlarging or securing the self. You are happy when you pay your mortgage or get a raise. Joy, by contrast, always involves some loss of self. He goes on to say, however, that joy can sometimes be an intensification of happiness. He says, it can crown and ratify a flourishing life. But he makes the distinction further in that joy can also compromise or even obliterate happiness. It can reveal a happiness to be so hopelessly tenuous and shallow that on the other side of the rupture, you can find yourself with no tenable or at least no honorable way back. It can disclose a spiritual existence, the full realization of which will require some sacrifice. Another poem I'd like to read for you about joy is called Joy by Liesel Mueller. And this is one that Wyman also includes in his study. And I find this poem to be a moving picture of an unplanned joyful moment 
and one that embodies the range of emotions that we could tap into while having this kind of experience. It's only music, and it was only spring. The world's unreasoning body run amuck like a saint's with glory that overwhelmed a young girl into unreasoning sadness. Crazy, she told herself. I should be dancing with, with happiness. But it happened again. It happens when we make bottomless love. There follows a bottomless sadness, which is not despair, but it's nameless, nameless opposite. It has nothing to do with the passing of time. It's not about loss. It's about two seemingly parallel lines suddenly coming together inside us in some place that is still wilderness. Joy, joy, the sopranos sing, reaching for the shimmering notes while our eyes fill with tears. So this is the poem that Wyman um, borrows from to title his essay, Still Wilderness, which he calls the place that is most us but remains beyond us. So the speaker is puzzled by her reaction to this music. She says, I should be dancing with happiness. But joy isn't simply happiness. And joy isn't despairing either. But it's not devoid of sorrow. In this moment, the speaker makes a connection between, between two seemingly parallel lines that could be described as an encounter between herself, perhaps, and beyond herself. Another excerpt from Wyman's poetry um, book of anthology is from the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, whom Wyman includes as one of these voices. And he looks at joy from a different angle. He looks at it from the angle of a moment of revelation. He says, authentic faith is more than an echo of tradition. It is a creative situation, an event. For God is not always silent and man is not always blind. In every man's life, there are moments when there is a lifting of the veil at the horizon of the known, opening a sight of the eternal. Each of us has once caught a glimpse of the beauty, peace, and power that flow through the souls of those who are devoted to him. But such experiences or inspirations are rare events. To some, they are like shooting stars, passing and unremembered. In others, they kindle a light that is never quenched. The remembrance of that experience and loyalty to the response of that moment are the, voice, the forces that sustain our faith. In this sense, faith is faithfulness, loyalty to an event, loyalty to our response. So Herschel is echoing many of the ideas we've already put forth by these writers that joy is a unique, singular moment, that it's an explosion here is depicted as a, as a lifting of the veil, a shooting star. But notice how he conveys the life-changing quality of joy as faithfulness to an event. Whereas Smith wants to forget, Heschel focuses on the rem remembrance of the moment and loyalty to it. It is a light that is never quenched. Joyous events are rarities that illumine one's understanding and after which one is never the same. As a person who believes... Um, who believes in the truth of the Christian story. And I can think of two powerful moments in my life when reality seemed to expand and become more real. I think Heschel's words are important for myself 
and for anyone who says they have a conversion story, for anyone who has experienced this type of joy of the universe exploding in front of you and realizing there's something more than just me on this planet. There's something more. Perhaps there's something I can consider and taking it further than that. That life of faith is transformed by this moment. Maybe you wouldn't call that moment joyous. Maybe you wouldn't call it joy. Because perhaps the moment did involve some loss of self, as Wyman puts it. Or perhaps simply because our modern day working definition of joy is lacking. But C.S. Lewis called it joy. And he describes his moment of conversion like this. It was like a man after a long sleep still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Perhaps joy is being awake to a greater reality than our everyday commonplace one. But Heschel does something more here than our previous voices haven't. He gives us an imperative to remember and an imperative to respond. So what is our response? And how do we remain loyal to joy? Wyman includes a quote from Anna Kamienska, I hope I said that correctly. She's a Polish writer from her work Astonishments that speaks into this. She writes, Joy, it's not just a gift. In a sense, it's a duty, a task to fulfill. Courage. For indeed, that's what it requires. Courage to live a life marked by joy to live with the memory of a more real reality, to have a piece of eternity dwelling within you, and to be loyal to it. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann writes this about a life marked by joy. He says, Joy motivates us to revolt against the life that is destroyed and against those who destroy life. And grief over life that is destroyed is nothing other than ardent longing for life's liberation to happiness and joy. Otherwise, we would accept innocent suffering and destroyed life as our fate and destiny. Compassion is the other side of living joy. We don't accuse God because there is suffering in the world. Rather, we protest in the name of God against suffering and those who cause it. This is a picture of what being joyful looks like. Joy manifests as an outpouring of compassion in one's life. An outpouring of compassion means loving your neighbor as yourself, regardless of past deeds, skin color, or socioeconomic background. Being marked by joy means a call to action. It means protesting for the voiceless, housing the homeless, clothing the naked. It's a call to arms, an urge to live with an outpouring of this kind of love, of this kind of life, of this kind of compassion. To remember and put into action the promise that we have in joy. That, and this comes from Psalms 30, 5b, the promise that we have is that the weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Joy in a redeemed world is our hope. Wendell Berry offers a poem, and one that Wyman includes, that could serve as a a mantra. I might start reading this every day when I I wake up. Um, It's called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And it begins with a warning. It begins um, warning the reader that if you live an insular, comfortable, reliable life, that your life will become lesser than. He goes on to list imperatives for a liberated life and a life well lived. He writes, 
Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all you have and be poor. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he is not yet destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Say that that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to Carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman to bear, to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman nearing to give birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and politicos can can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. In a culture wrought with, set with, with success and security narratives, the, the culture that I come from, probably the culture that you come from. Barry's poem at first listen could resonate, perhaps a little alarmingly. But here is call to courage. Do something that won't compute. Live outside of the ordinary. Take up the task. Love the Lord. Love the world. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Let your life's work be an inherited legacy that you will then bequeath to another unfinished. Stop and listen to the birds. Take time with your loves. Practice resurrection. Practicing resurrection. Isn't that the ultimate outpouring of joy? Doing away with the old broken ways of the world and putting on redemption. Putting on the compassion that is the outpouring of our joy. Perhaps perhaps even an outpouring of his joy in us. 
and ultimately trusting that Jesus will return to put all things to rights, that finally we will view and love our neighbor as they should be viewed and loved, and also how we will finally view ourselves loved more than we could possibly imagine. That is our ultimate joy and our ultimate promise. (laughs) That one day we won't just experience momentary explosions of joy, of eternity breaking in, but that eternity will one day become one with our reality. (laughs) That joy will then become our final reality because we'll be experiencing it. We'll be experiencing it firsthand with him. We have a lot to look forward to, you guys. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Thank you for listening. Sorry for the emotional. That's me. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you.